everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we've been recording that looks at the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is having on the healthcare ecosystem. Uh, in line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by my DRG colleagues, Steve Edgar and Judith Rubenstein. Um, they're both going to offer insights on how the pandemic is actually impacting patient access to, 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 to treatments. So Steve is uh, a senior manager in the global market access uh, team uh, and is based in Toronto. And Judith is senior director of data at Context Matters uh, market access platform. And she's based in New York. So Steve and Jude, Judith, um, I, I hope you, you're both well and, and those you care about are, are also keeping safe. Uh, thanks very much for, for, for joining me today. Appreciate it, Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So we're all aware of the devastating impact that the pandemic is actually having, you know, the appalling death toll that has affected hundreds of thousands of families and the disruption for people to you know, get treatment, not just for, for, for COVID-19, but all other diseases and conditions. So from, from your research, you know, what have been the most important important issues that actually have impacted access to, 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 to medicines and treatment? Well, I can jump in there. I, I think it's been really interesting because it's such a rapidly developing situation, obviously. So you don't have any of the usual tools. Um, it's sort of relying on uh, mechanisms that are in place for, I mean, there's emergency um, tools in place, obviously, but for the most part, uh, that access to medicines is something that's done, you know, very cautiously carefully. So in this case, I think what we're seeing in terms of the larger health landscape is, is essentially five key themes that governments are responding with. So I think, first of all, um, it's just containing the, the scope of the problem, obviously. So testing and tracing um, and just trying to come up with sort of novel methods to make sure that we're actually mitigating the impact um, of the actual virus spread. But then you really get to the supply chain and how are you actually uh, supplying the drugs that are needed, uh, their treatments, that need to be provided in order to tackle the problem. But then, of course, you have to look at, well, how are you assessing treatments? Obviously, if we have new treatments, it's a, it's a novel um, virus. We have to look at sort of um, assessing, you know, what can we do to sort of tackle this, maybe relying on old uh, therapies, maybe relying on new, and then how do we go about assessing them? And then how do we uh, speed the access to those medicines? Because obviously the sort of traditional pathways um, are a little slow for the context we're in right now. And then, of course, you have to look at how do you pay for those treatments? Um, how do you uh, surge resources to healthcare systems to make sure that people have access to care um, when we actually have those treatments available? So it's really sort of along that continuum, I think, um, that we're seeing essentially the response. And because with the uh, novelty of this, like I said, the speed of it, you can't usually, you can't really rely on traditional sort of uh, developing policies, uh, rigorous review. It's much more of a all hands on deck um, which I think we're all finding in all sort of instances in life right now. But um, yeah, it's sort of looking throughout the continuum at the different elements of the supply chain, right from uh, development right through to, to access. Yeah, so um, yeah, so highlighting five key issues there. Um, I, I think what we'll do is we'll um, look at them, you know, what one at a time. So we, we'll, we'll get a little bit granular. So um, I guess the 
one of the issues that you you, you talked about was the supply chain issue and, and this is you know something that we, we, we were all aware of because the, just in terms of like uh, PPE equipment ventilators etc there was a sort of challenge around that and then there was you know concerns about whether or not people were going to get access to active pharmaceutical ingredients etc so you know, what actually you know are the major challenges um, around that supply chain disruption and you know what is being done to either at least minimize it if not actually uh, you know prevent you know, shortages of drugs or uh, key components of patient care? Yeah, well, I think, uh, thankfully, a lot of the early concerns haven't um, borne out in terms of severe shortages. Obviously, they have with personal protective equipment, with medicines. Um, supply lines have held up, aside from some exceptions, but for the most part, um, some of the really early concerns, obviously, were as countries looked like maybe they were jockeying for position in terms of imports. Um, there were some real concerns about export bans. Um, I know in India, there was some API, initially some restrictions on, on exports. So there's some concerns there. Uh, I think governments have sort of come together and there's some certainly some authorization um, barriers in terms of going through different processes. But for the most part, we have seen those products moving. But at the same time, um, there's obviously concerns about running out of you know, existing stocks of drugs. So the, the main thing we've seen is really a lot of government involvement, a little more heavy handed, obviously, than in the past. So a lot of mandatory orders to inventory stocks. Um, some governments have taken the, uh, granted themselves the authority to compel companies to prioritize production of essential medicines. Haven't seen that be something that's been put into practice, but certainly like I know in Spain, they've given themselves that authority. Um, certainly inventorying being on top of all the essential medicines. Um, and then also sort of trying to build up centralized stocks you know, as they already have them in place. And then you've also seen uh, orders, a lot of orders sort of preventing stockpiling by individual firms. So a lot of, and I think this is a theme you'll see throughout this discussion, but a lot of sort of centralizing a bit and just sort of making sure to consider the wider scope of the problem, whereas in the past, maybe it would have been a little more decentralized. So that's one of the sort of the, the, the initial sort of uh, triage, I think, to, to resolving the dilemma here with worrying about drug shortages. Right. And is there anything though that, say for example, the industry or sort of your companies, you know, uh, can be doing to you know, ease that that you know, potential strain? Yeah, I think so. Like, they don't necessarily need to wait for uh, government action. Like, I know in Japan, for example, one thing I've been monitoring that's really interesting is the industry association has uh, sort of come together, um, coordinating across, you know, different uh, companies, providing self-checklists for COVID supply, um, and then having processes in place for should they have shortages or should they identify any shortage. And of course, there aren't that many COVID-19 therapies we found that are that effective, but we're really talking about concerns about just moving, you know, other therapies around um, essential drugs. And uh, I think the coordination there, having a tool in place to say, okay, well, we know who has this stock, you know, we're centralizing this within the industry. So voluntary measures like that sort of coordinating. So they have some kind of way to um, act, you know, effectively. And I, I think also on that, line now more from the government perspective but you're seeing a little bit more centralized procurement as well so whereas it would have been uh, more direct purchasing whereas there would have been in the past um you know maybe going out to bids and more decentralized across facilities just a little bit more um sort of doing that at the central level so i think firms can really be active in engaging with um, decision makers there and sort of keeping them aware of where they're at in terms of their stock and supply and then again coordination is going to be key so regional coordination we're seeing some of that so i know the ema 
um, which you'll probably see uh, throughout, you know, most of the responses that's been a sort of, they've jumped out of in front on a lot of these issues in terms of regional coordination. Um, but yeah, just sort of that kind of siloed approach really isn't going to be an effective response, obviously, to, to the scale of the crisis here. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> I guess that there was, um, there have been sort of, you know, sort of questions about you know, how prepared everybody was for the pandemic, because you know, in the past, there had been sort of, you know, stockpiling when there was you know, concerns around you know, a potential flu pandemic, etc. Do you think that this, you know, in a post-pandemic world, there would be uh, you know, a different sort of level of preparedness uh, on, on behalf of, of governments in terms of you know, making sure that they've got those strategic stockpiles of, 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 of essential equipment and, and, and medicines? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think one thing that could be really interesting um, and have sort of a lasting impact is this sort of push to localize supply chains. So you are seeing some of that. Like, as I mentioned, you know, even with supply lines holding up in, in certain respects, obviously there's concerns because, uh, you know, heavy, heavy reliance on China and India. I think 80% of, you know, a lot of markets I've been looking at, you know, they're relying obviously for their active pharmaceutical ingredients um, from those markets. So there's just general concerns. So I think that will probably have a lasting impact. I know we've seen Sanofi in France is, is looking to become, I think, the second largest API manufacturer with a local Europe uh, effort. Uh, I know in Germany, um, government has been very vocal, but we're sort of pushing for a more European-based uh, supply chain. And I think the most interesting one I've seen actually is in Japan, they've actually paid uh, financial incentives to companies to move outside of um, China in particular, but just to, to move into Japan or to other markets, just either whether to localize or to at least diversify supply chains. So yeah. I think that will be really uh, interesting to watch. Obviously, that has implications for for pricing. Um, I mean, obviously, there's reasons that things have been set up sort of the way they are in terms of global interconnectedness. So I, I think that'll be, I think you will see more movement on that front. But then the question is, how efficient will that be? Um, and if we have these sort of this diverse supply chain, what will it mean for sort of how smoothly we're used to things operating in terms of um, centralized sourcing and, and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, in conversations I had with both uh, Joe Panetta, who's the CEO and president of Biocom, the Californian biocluster, and um, you know, Bob Coughlin at, at MassBio, which again is the, 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 sort of the epicenter for sort of the, you know, the biotech world in, in, in Massachusetts, they both uh, said that they anticipated that uh, companies would you know, at, at least geographically diversify their, their supply chains and, and and some of those supply chains would, would be a lot shorter. So it isn't just something that's happening in Europe and Asia. It's also, you know, happening in, in, in the US. Um, what One of the other uh, issues uh, you talked about, and this is you know, almost like a political hot potato, uh, you know, certainly here in Europe, and that's, that's around, you know, the... the surveillance you know sort of the tracking and 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 the tracing you know what are the challenges have you seen around the sort of you know the establishment of of robust systems that actually can you know be complementary you know across international borders Uh, yeah i think there's a a number of challenges i think you hit on the key there which is coordinating across borders or even within borders i mean we've had a lot i know in canada where i'm based um, even where there is a good infrastructure in terms of um, sort of a strong capacity in terms of you know, leveraging patient data um, and, and sort of epidemiological 
uh, forecasting, things like that, we, we're having trouble sort of coordinating and sharing that data effectively. So um, I think given we're seeing that in decentralized jurisdictions, even nationally, the internationally, it's, 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 a, it's a real challenge. I mean, we're seeing, again, the EMA, we're seeing uh, agencies come together to try to coordinate on this. Um, but really, uh, the question is, I think it's twofold. It's do you have the, the data capacity in place? So um, like I know, for example, Austria has done in Germany, for example, I think the, the UK also has made some movement here in terms of, you know, aggregated anonymized patient data, being able to draw on that, um, you know, to attract the disease spread. Um, but again, to be able to provide sort of that real-time insight, you need to sort of, there's a lot of elements that come into play that make it a little trickier. So for example, you see a lot of partnering with big tech and big data, um, sort of leverage that effectively looking at claims data, but of course, um, you run into a lot of privacy issues. So I think the, one of the lasting things here will be a proliferation of um, more of a sort of data privacy regimes. But again, those haven't really been tested on this sort of scale, I don't think. Um, and then of course, when you get into the contact tracing, uh, things like that, obviously there's apps. Um, South Korea has done one. Um, the UK obviously is rolling out their test and trace initiative. And so I think they'll, you'll see a lot of that sort of um, continued concerns. So sort of how do you balance the effectiveness of sort of the patient uh, data. Now it is an anonymized, aggregated, but there's obviously concerns nonetheless. Like I know in India, for example, uh, they have a biometric uh, database for a previous health system they rolled out and there's been some <clears throat> state governments have released some of that data in terms of who's infected. So I mean, obviously I think it goes to developing up that capacity, the technical capacity, the expertise in terms of managing this data and then really sharing it. Can you effectively share it because can, can these decision makers talk to one another because like i said even in, in in canada we have one of the more sophisticated ehr capacities we're not in that ehr but in terms of um patient data monitoring it, it's not really sharing across decision makers that effectively i think that's been a struggle so i think you'll see probably more of that again more of that centralized um a little more involvement um centrally or like you said regionally sort of supranationally sort of people just jumping in to say okay we need to have some sort of tool to be able to monitor this leverages data across borders because the disease isn't going to know borders obviously it's just not as effective on that scale i mean have there been any sort of you know good examples of of best practice that could actually become the sort of you know the basis of a a more you know, cohesive surveillance system you know transnational surveillance system I think transnationally, it's a struggle at the moment. Like, I think you're seeing more individual regions. I think Europe is probably the lead there. Like I mentioned, Austria um, has been very effective at sort of drawing on the patient data. They have, they already have sort of the surveys in place. They have through their social insurance system. They're, they're well um, positioned, sort of drawing electronic health records um, and other sort of medical research to provide insight into the treatment needs. But I, I think um, internationally, I mean, you are seeing more and more of that coordination. I think it's early on. So uh, I think it remains to be seen from my perspective. I think I mean, there is obviously some movement, um, but it's one of those things where like, I, I'm skeptical a little bit of how effectively governments will be able to share and sort of leverage this data. Obviously they're going to have to. So we're going to have to see sort of how effectively can you just put these new measures into place. But it, it's one of those things where um, governments have trouble co cooperating in the best of times. So it'll be interesting to see you know, how can they really roll that forward into something, especially when it could be so volatile in terms of, privacy concerns. I mean, that's not something that's going to be at the forefront when people are dealing with the pandemic, but it's going to be something of lasting significance yeah. to a lot of people, obviously, as, it, as things hopefully calm down in the future a little bit. Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, again, there's, you know, there's one thing having the data and being able to collect it, um, but then it's actually knowing 
you know, what data, what you can actually do with that data, um, because we don't really understand everything we need to know about COVID-19 and the way it's transmitted, etc. So that clearly there are still a, a whole bunch of challenges around that. Around um, sort of the, you know, the whole sort of clinical development space, um, clinical development, approval, uh, launch of new medicines and vaccines uh, usually takes years to complete. Given the rapid pace in which this pandemic is spreading, what, what have you seen? What is being done to sort of you know, increase the velocity uh, in delivering you know, COVID-19 diagnostics and, and, and treatments? Yeah, it's, it's been very interesting. So that's an area where um, you know, there are policies in place traditionally, and I think we will see more of those. So priority review pathways, um, so where essentially you have the life-threatening uh, condition, there's an absence of alternatives, um, perhaps it's first in market, um, you know, th there's ways to sort of streamline the process of approval. And we're seeing a, a real growth in those over the last few years. It's something we've been tracking. And um, they've had market success, really, those pathways. But again, they're not, that is sort of a, assuming a much less um, rapid sort of development in this. So what we're seeing instead of reliance on those as much is more on, you know, emergency access, uh, compassionate use programs where you have sort of a very limited patient population, um, and I know we've all, we've been sort of tracking that with some of these emerging therapies. So relying on these, um, you know, these sort of emergency mechanisms. But again, I think in the future, there'll be more of the sort of um, the priority review where it's a little more standardized. I mean, these, pro these programs are, but they're, they're more of a short-term sort of solution. So that's an area where I think we'll see probably a little bit more um, cementing or developing of those priorities, sort of expedited review pathways. And, and what that means is sort of what we're starting to see already, where the data requirements aren't as stringent necessarily early. There's potential for sort of post follow-up. Um, and then e even right from the beginning, we're seeing sort of, you know, accelerated research pathways, for example. So whereas even just in terms of, you know, the, the research ethics approvals, um, if there's say, for example, uh, there could be parallel review. So say there's, there's uh, multiple reviewers are required um, to go through various procedures, which is, is all too common in research. Um, we're seeing some parallel reviews. Certainly timelines have been sort of massively expedited. So if there's, um, you know, governments or EMA, you, uh, NICE and UK, they're trying to get out ahead of, of this and sort of put out guidelines of what they're looking for. But they're, they're certainly um, streamlining most of those processes where things could take months, they're taking days, um, approving clinical trials much more quickly, um, and sort of just moving, try to move these things along as, as quickly as possible and sort of have one foot into the next step of the process at a quicker pace than they would have in the past. So yeah, you're, you're definitely seeing a lot of movement there. And I think, like I said, um, these emergency use exemptions, compassionate use, I think will be, you know, um, early access to medicines in the UK. Like you'll see those schemes, I think cemented a little bit more as a result of this. So that's certainly an interesting area to watch. But again, they've definitely, you know, sped up. Um, I'd say pretty much all these, all the timelines at every stage of it, which is very interesting, like bioequivalence testing, um, just the various sort of elements that will go into it because it's a quite a long drawn out process normally. And then yeah, we're just seeing that. Expedited. I think interestingly from every step of the way, whereas in the past, it might be from one particular element um, and that would take years to develop. And now it's just happening within months. Yeah, I mean, so in conversations I've had with, you know, CEOs of biotechs and you know, the pharmaceutical companies, that's exactly what they're saying is that, you know, sort of the decision processes that would have taken months have been concertinaed into, into days. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that, 
actually maybe this is something in a post-pandemic world, maybe we don't actually have to have such elongated uh, you know, processes that we can actually, you know, the, this velocity or speed that we've created, we could do something about. Um, but of course, then it comes back to you know, having good surveillance systems, because of course, you, know, you want to then sort of, you know, still you know, be able to track the patients when, you know, if they're on these uh, drugs that have been uh, approved in, 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 in these sort of rapid processes. What about, however, you know, you know treatments um, or you know, sort of, you know, regulatory processes involving treatments or diagnostics that aren't actually you know, COVID-19 focused? You know, are we seeing any evidence that there is a, a slowing down of, of, of regulatory processes and, 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 and approvals for sort of non COVID conditions, and you know, if so, what what should companies be doing to sort of you know, minimize uh, um, that situation? Um, so, for regulatory approvals, um, we're not we're not really seeing a slowdown, uh, just because they are a longer pathway of time. So, in terms of the clinical trials that are in process, there is some. Uh, evidence that recruiting for them has slowed down, but um, there's not a ton of evidence that the that there will be an additional add-on of many months to the approval process. Although um, we do know that in the March timeframe in certain countries there was a, an immediate delay, so so there might be a delay of a couple of months of bringing things directly to market. But it doesn't look like uh, overall that this is going to be something that sets us back in terms of research in years or or even you know many months. Right, right. Um, you're, you know, in, in in the work that you do, you have a lot of visibility on what's going on sort of you know, in that health technology uh, assessment space. Um, yeah, how has how has the pandemic actually impacting uh, or disrupting you know, either sort of, yeah, current assessments or the initiation of of, of new ones? Because m- most of these HTAs actually take place, you know, when 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 the products are uh, you know close to approval or it, it, they've been approved. So, are we seeing any disruption on on, on HTA and um, uh, assessments? So on that front, we are seeing some significant disruption. Um, some countries like South Korea have effectively stopped their HDA production. Um, some com- countries like France have uh, created a much more streamlined process for it. Um, and in general, HDA production uh, has gone way down um, and the, it's hard to see what the uptake of new HTA is, but um, it looks like there is some evidence that in the May timeframe, peop- uh, some countries, particularly in Europe, were trying to catch up on, on some of that um, so that there isn't a long-term delay, but we're not sure if that will that trend will continue or if HTA production will be will be much further down. Um, and there is also some concern around what the decisions will be 
from these HGA bodies and whether or not they will be able to approve drugs at the same rates as they have in the past, if they're going to have to reevaluate their thresholds. Um, There's some evidence that outside of COVID-19, there there might be a need to cut spending in healthcare because um, of lack of money. Um, But there is also... There is also some evidence that uh, within COVID-19, they're looking at some more creative pricing models. So not just looking at cost effectiveness analysis or cost utility analysis, but looking at um, some cost recovery models. So that that would be something um, actually in the United States uh, for remdesivir, the agency ICER, proposed a cost recovery model um, and uh, of $10 for a 10-day course of treatment, or if the course of treatment was five days, it would be a $5 um, cost recovery model for the company. Um, and that that would be a very different type of, of pricing um, for, for that kind of treatment. Okay, so there's some sort of yeah, in, innovative thinking around almost like the sort of the models that, that the people are using. Um, and, and presumably this could be used for, you know, other areas, you know, like for example, antimicrobial resistance, where again, it's really, really difficult to sort of, you know, price in um, sort of, you know, or, or to come up with a price for, for, for the value of the, of, the, of the drug. So the, when, when sort of looking at sort of the, 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 the HTAs then, um, you're saying that, well, there may have been some sort of drop off, but it looks like they're sort of beginning to pick up uh, pace, uh, certainly uh, in Europe, that, that, that might be the case. And that there is also going to be potentially a sort of, you know, a readjustment in the terms of sort of the models. You also sort of hinted though that, there might be because of the sheer cost of the um, to the economies of of, of 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 the pandemic that there may be a sort of a rethinking about you know what cost effective looks like. Does that mean that there would be you know, potentially sort of a lowering of those thresholds of of where something is you know deemed to be cost effective or not? So no one's talking specifically about that. There has been no uh, official data on that on that front, but there is um, there is a lot of evidence that p- countries are running close to what their healthcare budgets might be for the whole year, and we are only half half we yeah yeah. So okay. Um, and actually, sort of, you know, I mean, this brings us nicely into sort of, you know, uh, how sort of various health systems across the globe have actually, you know, responded to to, to the back, back pandemic, um, uh, because we've seen sort of different, uh, you know, different ways they've done it. Do we have sort of, you know, any um, sort of sense of some of the, some of the sort of the initiatives that have been introduced? actually might be sustained uh you know what once the sort of the the, sort of the the crisis begins to abate yeah i think we've seen a lot of obviously a lot of public investment in vaccine research and development um 
I think something that'll be really important is to continue, especially in a cost constrained environment, which it will be obviously as the economic fallout starts to take hold, um, to continue, I think, advocating for that funding, if not just for this crisis, to prepare for the next. So I think, um, for example, I'm seeing a lot of like there's innovation super clusters in Canada, like I'm seeing a lot of um, interesting public-private collaboration. So I think those mechanisms, now that they're they're being designed, should hopefully be something we can leverage in the future. But I, you have to wonder, you know, how much is the funding going to dry up? I think that's obviously industry, uh, certainly patient groups will have a lot of an advocacy role there to play for sure. Um, I think as of right now, what we're seeing health systems do is just sort of surge resources to the front lines, you know, try to expand access to care. And, and I think that that lines up nicely with, you know, there's been a lot of ex- expansion of sort of universal insurance. I know we've been tracking that in Southeast Asia, for instance, places like the Philippines and where they're really trying to develop, you know, uh, their coverage uh, all throughout the, the area. And you're seeing that sort of globally where the, the countries that, you know, if you have a higher out-of-pocket, obviously it's harder to to sort of address the coverage in this case. So you're seeing the health system challenges that are always sort of been there, but it's put the extra sort of bit of strain there. And I think for that reason, there's really two sort of commonalities you're seeing in responses sort of regardless of political stripes or the, the nature of the health system, which is we are seeing extension of health uh, insurance benefit packages. So sort of temporary kind of packages to cover any associated treatments and then a waiving of co-payments. So for diagnostics, any kind of associated treatment. So what's interesting is, um, you know, as they define more, you know, more effective ways to deliver care, to, to, to deliver uh, health services without this sort of some, some of the, some kind of encumbrances they've had, in terms of you know um, lack of coordination, uh, some of these some of these fee schedules I've been noticing are really it's really um, it's kind of Byzantine like it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think they're they're basically they're streamlining everything. Similar with market authorization, we're seeing just sort of okay, how do we cover these things in a holistic way? Um, and I'm I'm curious to see how much that lasts. Now again, uh, you're going to see cost containment, and that's sort of what you have to sort of watch out for, obviously, because you know governments across all sectors will be struggling sort of severely likely for at least in the short term before there's any economic rebound. So uh, to me, I think that points to, you know, where, where is the more, how can you sort of effectively leverage that, um, that kind of a context into something positive for, for patients. And I think that's probably more efficient allocation of health resources. So that's something we are seeing already. Um, so we mentioned digital health a little bit, but certainly telemedicine, uh, more home care, um, just sort of, uh, again, Big data, leveraging that for say, smartphone apps, um, and just sort of uh, finding a way to I th- more effectively sort of leverage this you know environment. Like I don't think that there'll be the cost necessarily available um, for some of these sort of past practices. So I don't think they'll be able to put that back, that genie back in the bottle. You know, some of these things where like I know payers have been really concerned about some of these ways of you know prescribing, you know, online prescribing or or telemedicine, and, and uh, we have seen less resistance to that, which is really notable. And in the U.S., there's been a lot of um, past resistance, and we're seeing you know, insurance companies sort of pull back on that. Um, but, of course, the, the concern has always been overuse and, and arguments about fraud and whatnot. And I think, I think looking ahead a bit, you'll probably see more development of um, sort of mon- new monitoring mechanisms, sort of ways to uh, sort of try to rein those yeah, concerns. Also do something about it. Yeah, again, so conversations I've had with people, they've, they've suggested, you know, that their, you know, the healthcare systems are going to be different, you know, around things like, you know, so telehealth, telemedicine, um, you know, where is in fact the best place to give patient care? Um, and the fact that you know, a lot of patients have now experienced that, that remote um, uh, access or engagement uh, 
with, with, with physicians, uh, something that kind of got used to and and actually recognised that you know it actually works. So therefore, there's not going to be much patient resistance to to, to that shift. So I think we're going to see some some changes there. I mean, do companies have to do something different? I mean, do they have to do make different kinds of investment or change their behaviours to to adapt to, to to this you know this potentially new environment? I think so. I mean, I think you need to obviously build up your information technology sort of capabilities. You need to be able to um, engage with decision makers on a new front. Uh, that maybe in the past is something that you could sort of afford not to um, if you were sort of already having success through established channels. I, I think you're going to have to address that um, more business to consumer kind of model where, you know, you're um, in terms of healthcare delivery. So like I know in China, for example, we talk about telemedicine, but a lot of these things where there's, there's a question of sort of the infrastructure, right? So like I mentioned China just because I know there's been some, a lot of partnering there with local firms, uh, technology firms, you know, sort of working with health providers. So you're seeing more of that. Um, I think companies need to be sort of reaching out, looking for opportunities like that if they don't have their own uh, capacity. Um, and, and, and just sort of also, I think just in general, and sort of going back to what Judith was talking about as well, but in this goes to HTA in general, but it's specifically now, obviously, the focus on value. So in this cross-contained environment, it'll be incredibly important to, to, you know, to be able to demonstrate value. Obviously, right now, um, in terms of evidence evaluation, that's something that's sort of being you know, sped along or certain things have been sort of set aside for the moment, but obviously as they start, uh, you know, getting back to evaluating all technologies and looking at what could sort of fill the new post-COVID landscape in terms of meeting therapeutic needs, you're going to want to be able to make that value proposition. It's, a, it's, it's going to be more important than ever, obviously, because there just won't be the, the uh, resources available, I don't think, for, you know, for anything that doesn't really make that case. Yeah, I would say that uh, this, this may push us even further towards a world where real world world evidence is something that we're going to have to look at in a more comprehensive way. And that, um, you know, HTAs may, may be more open to uh, as a result of some of these drugs being approved or, or taken into account with these new programs that, that have developed around, um, COVID-19, I think that there's probably going to be need to do more research into how, how they manage that. You know, are there more propensity score matching studies? Are there more uh, ways of evaluating real world evidence to make that more, uh, more like a randomized control trial and more able to be compared to other trials? Yeah. And, and of course, interesting the sort of you know the use of real world evidence, um, you know the, the shorter timelines. I mean, that's clearly going to affect the sort of the economics and of R and D, which then will sort of you know factor in you know the cost of healthcare as well. So you know, you want to sort of see there there are knock on effects. Um, so just finally, um, I just like to, you know, to ask you both: so what lessons do you think um, you know the world you know, can learn from, from this pandemic, you know, which behaviors will become that, you know, that new normal, um, that are going to impact, you know, the healthcare ecosystem, uh, you know, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, whether it's hospitals or health systems or, or, or doctors or patients. 
I think from, like I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but just from a regulatory perspective, and and you know right through the pricing and reimbursement, some of the uh, duplicative processes. There's I think there is some streamlining. There's obviously streamlining that's happening um, out of necessity, but I think a lot of that something we can look at. Um, you know, keeping patient safety and sort of evidence at, at the forefront. There's still a lot of um, you know processes that are just sort of they've outlived their usefulness, or there's a way to sort of like for example parallel review of you know different uh, stages in the drug approval process i think those are things that um even to the supply chain level those are things that it can probably you know something we can learn from and, and carry that forward um and i mentioned priority review in general processes those aren't in every country you know in some places you just don't have that really that opportunity outside of maybe an emergency exemption you know to get drugs to products uh, products to, to patients that are really in need um, and there's not really an alternative and so i think um we've seen some of that in recent years but i would expect to see a lot more of that um, you know, what that means is policies like, you know, if there's a domestic clinical trials required, maybe waiving that if it's not necessarily applicable in this case, if you can draw on, you know, data that sort of can show some of the same, same uh, evidence, and maybe you can have a post follow up just to get uh, drugs to patients and things like that. I think we can see certainly in some of the developing markets as well, where those processes are a lot more bureaucratic. Um, you have kind of learned from this, you can't really afford to, to have that in place, I don't think all the time, because it doesn't really leave you well equipped to prepare for the next crisis, I would say. Yeah, I'd say that um, the one that I think will be the most um, the most lasting will be the the shortening of the time between initial molecule development and patient access. Um, I think that, however, that happens, and that will probably look different in different places, but that that's going to be the key piece that that we retain beyond this, and that. Um, companies really and and systems need to consider how to do that in the future yeah yeah, yeah and i think that. also so i was just going to say in line with that i think with this cost containment in those processes like we talk about hta i think you'll see a lot more innovative contracting you know we mentioned the the earlier example there um and just sort of the cost recovery approach and how do you sort of uh, price these technologies but i think just going forward you'll see a lot more uh, managed entry and innovative contracting just to sort of get these Get treatments to patients to, to help speed that sort of um, that process in terms of trimming down those timelines, but also uh, affordability questions. So there'll be a lot more, you know, looking at how, how you know, innovative ways to come up with pricing arrangements that can sort of benefit uh, payers and manufacturers as well. So, so great. Well, uh, Steve, Judith, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to us today. The, the insights that, that you sh- shared will be of great interest to, to, to our audience. So if you'd like to tune into future conversations in healthcare, follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be posting alerts for the future episode releases. Uh, in closing, I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Steve and, and Judith again for, for, for joining us and, and thank you for, for, for tuning in. Uh, until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.